You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to M Squared TechCast, a live internet radio show offering the latest news and interviews with the people driving business, technology, and politics in Michigan. Now, your hosts, Matt Rausch and Mike Brennan. And Mike Brennan. And we're back with the, let's see, what is this, March 22nd, 2021 uh, episode of the M Squared TechCast. Happy spring, everybody. It's a beautiful day outside, 65 degrees. The birds are chirping, and uh, it looks like spring is definitely on the way. Well, it's Michigan, so, uh, you know. Right now oh, yeah. it's nice. Who knows, right? We're 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 going to get at least a little bit more snow. There's virtually no doubt of that. But it'll be you know wet and sloppy and melt in a couple of days. So yeah. there you go. Okay. Then we have rejoining us after a long absence, Enrico Shaver, our tech attorney, and he laid something on me last week that I had not, I was not aware of, non fungible tokens for cryptocurrency. So I had to do a little boning up on that just to see what it was we were going to talk about. But why don't you explain that probably much better than I could, Enrico? All right, Matt, Micah, to see you guys again. And uh, so non-fungible tokens or NFTs have become um, really a a big part of the news cycle over the last uh, couple of weeks and months. And so you're starting to see a lot of blockchain, a lot of Bitcoin, uh, crypto news, uh, because you've got major institutions, the financial institutions are starting to allow, you know, Bitcoin transactions to, to be, be investment vehicles for their investors. You've got um, big companies that are now starting to, more and more companies starting to accept Bitcoin. So this, this NFT, this non-fungible token is a blockchain, a crypto technology where, um, remember we talked about how the blockchain is like this giant ledger where every transaction goes onto the ledger and it's immutable, right? So with a, with Bitcoin, I buy a Bitcoin, that transaction goes onto the ledger. I, I know I own that Bitcoin that can never be changed. I don't need to hold it in my pocket. I've got it and the transaction's recorded. With the NFT, a non-fungible token is a smart contract uh, built on the Ethereum network, which is a, a variation of the, you know, the blockchain. And what it allows us to do is to say, okay, I've got this digital asset. Let's say I've got a piece of uh, digital artwork and I want to say that I'm going to provide 50 signed copies of that digital artwork that I'm going to make available, just like you would a a painting or a print of a painting that is signed by the artist, right? Except there is a painting now, there's just this digital asset. What's going to happen is that with an NFT, a non-fungible token, the artist is going to put online, is going to create the contract terms around that, 50 versions available, and then that record is going to attach to the artwork, go onto the blockchain, And then when people buy or pay at auction the amount of money required to be able to get uh, some sort of rights, sometimes exclusive rights, sometimes limited rights to that digital asset, 
now I own it, right? Now I own this thing for which is not tangible. I can't hold it. I can't touch it. I can't bring it anywhere, right? It's just this digital assets that's lo- that's lodged onto the blockchain that says, I now have a authentic signed copy of it. Crazy, isn't it? It's, it's even hard to say all this and make it make sense. So for a lot of people, it just doesn't make sense. But what's happening is, these NFTs, these 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 non-fungible tokens that are going onto the blockchain to reflect these auctions or sales of of these digital assets, people are paying millions or tens of millions of dollars for these digital assets. So a digital painting, oh, I I'm going to pay a million dollars for that digital painting. Why? Well, someone in their digital world may want to hang it up, and I'll license it to them to put it into their digital room in the digital world. Uh, yeah, I you know, I saw him like, what? Yes, that's what's going on. And the Ooh. fact that there's city, meaning there's only so many of them, creates the market value. What is the market value? It's whatever anyone's willing to pay for that NFT. Just like anything else, right? Yeah. This Crazy. you know, my my realtor when I was looking for a house told me there's some days your house isn't worth anything because there's nobody in the world who wants to buy it that day. But uh, you know, true. It's, it's it's all about you know what someone is willing to pay for something. Um, when did this start? You know, really start get going. I I know Bitcoin appeared what in the early teens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did Even this earlier. follow that shortly or? No, is is more. It's more recent in its. Um, the technology has been there. The smart contract technology has been there. The application for artists, creators, right? This this kind of put it into an auction idea is you know really relatively new in the last couple of years, but it really has taken off in, in the past year because you've had these record transactions where people are buying these digital cats that are really basic depictions of a cat and they're paying, you know, they're paying tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars, collectively millions of dollars to get some sort of digital rights in that little cat to that little JPEG that uh, gets stored somewhere on a server. So that's the news cycle. And now what we're seeing is that artists and creators, the light bulbs coming on, right? I've got a, I'm a celebrity. I've got a picture that is a very famous picture and I want to create an NFT, a non-fungible token around that. And I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to put it, going to create an NFT. I'm going to attach my signature to it and then I'm going to put it for auction. Now I can monetize that. And so like a playing card for an athlete that's signed is very similar to that. And athletes are taking advantage of NFTs right now. And they're making hundreds of thousands of dollars off of, you know, photographs or artwork that they've created that are now available for people on a limited basis. So it really allows uh, the the artistic community, the creator community to a whole different vehicle to monetize their work. Pretty interesting. So if we do a, a painting of Matt Roush and put that online, and then someone would want to hang that in their digital room, which doesn't really exist. We could make a lot of money. I'm thinking that's probably a pretty good idea. What do you think, Matt? Um, I I think uh, I've I've got better ways to spend fifty cents than most people do. So you know. so so they don't actually have possession of the. I mean, in the sense of I'm looking at 
pictures are on my room here. I don't have that. I got this in a digital room only. Well, I mean, I, theoretically, I could do something with it to make it non-digital. But the, the point is that it's just a digital. So hmm. um, there's two different general markets for this. There's just the speculative market, the investment market, where I'm going to buy it and I'm going to hold it because it's going to be worth more someday. And people have made hundreds of thousands of dollars buying low and selling high right? Mm -hmm. Their digital asset. So for instance, uh, uh, Jack Dorsey created an NFT auction around his very first tweet. And people are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for the rights. Own that signed Jack Dorsey copy of his first tweet. And you could see that one's, you could say, okay, that could be worth money someday. Someone might really want that in a digital world down the line. So you've got the the kind of the investor market, which is always the bigger portion of the market. And then you've got the kind of the real true enthusiasts who are literally buying this because they do own some digital um, house in a digital world platform somewhere. And they want to hang this up in their digital house and have, have other digital people come in and, and be able to visit it and see that artwork or create a museum where all the digital work is displayed. And now I can, charge admission for anyone that wants to come into my digital world to see the digital art collection. I mean, there's so many different variations and permutations of the application of NFTs right now. We don't even really know where it's going to go next, but those are the general concepts. So is there, as an attorney, is there a downside to this? Well, look, at there's never a downside to anything if you're an attorney, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I meant so, for the investor. For you, it's always good because you're billable hours, right? Yeah, right? There is upside for attorneys and NFTs because there's going to be lots of uh, issues, legal issues that crop up around NFTs. So um, it is it is a buyer beware, and there is a lot of misinformation or uneducated people in the market. But let's just take a look at some of the basics, right? I've got this amazing piece of uh, this JPEG that is an amazing depiction of, um, you know, of, uh, you know, the state of Michigan from above or whatever, right? Someone did a Google Earth shot of the San, the Golden Gate Bridge and then made that into an NFT and, and put it up on the market, right? So I've got this thing and now I'm going to put it into auction. I'm going to sign it as authentic. Someone's going to buy it. Well, what if I didn't own the rights to that? What if I wasn't the photographer? What if I wasn't the artist? And how does someone who's buying know that they're really getting the rights from someone who has rights or simply an imposter, you know, who is pretending to be Jack Dorsey and is going to put that first tweet up? Because guess what? They, anyone could go get that and make, you know, a copy of it off the internet. So you've got a lot of legal issues around counterfeiting. You certainly copyright uh, ownership and infringement um, market manipulation, as you do with a lot of the blockchain technologies, because, you know, there's not that many people in it. So it's easy to, to drive the market value up high by manipulating the market. Uh, if there happen to be people depicted in the photograph or video, for instance, then you could have publicity rights violations. Hey, I didn't give them permission to use my my name and likeness. These and other issues are going to be rampant around NFTs. Hmm. I was, was going to ask: Have there been has there been any litigation around this issue yet? Have we seen any? You know, what at this point would probably be test cases um, in the courts on this. Not that I have seen. There's a lot of reported violations 
So someone whose artwork is being auctioned off um, as a non-fungible token sees it and says, whoa, that's my artwork, mm. right? I, that's not me that is certifying authenticity of that. And I didn't license someone to be able to put this into the auction, right? So that is getting reported regularly in the news cycle. And mm. whether or not anyone's actually filed an action yet, uh, I haven't seen it, but it's certainly coming. Okay. Mm. So, wow, that's different. Uh, how did so? We got about two minutes left, so I don't know if we can sum it up. But how did someone come up with this idea? I mean, where did, where did it originate? Well, you know, the, the origins of it, I, I don't really have a handle on. I, I, you know, there was a, a really organic growth around the idea of smart contracts. And so smart contracts are coming, right? So I'm in a contract uh, with, with you, Mike, and it says that the contract lasts three years. We're going to, instead of signing through DocuSign, we're going to use the blockchain, digital signatures. That is going to be recorded on the block. The thing about smart contracts is it'll have a bunch of things in it that um, get executed. So let's say that there was an automatic renewal if no one gives notice within six months of the end of the term. Mm-hmm. That smart contract can actually tell people that remind people that that's coming up and then record that there is an automatic renewal as, as part of its, its logic. Right? So this is really a variation of that. It's a smart contract around digital rights. Now keep in mind, Bitcoin is no different. There is no Bitcoin. There's nothing tangible in a Bitcoin. It's so Mm -hmm. it's very similar to what's happening here with a signature of authenticity. Mm -hmm. It's not on paper. It's not a tangible item, right? So you put all these forces together and, and people really started to see that we might be able to sell with smart contracts, digital items online. The real transformation is when people started buying it for, for hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, right? Then all of a sudden you see the market start to evolve around that. And now you have all kinds of people who have valuable digital items using this technology to monetize them. And keep in mind, if I'm an artist and I've got a great piece of art, um, like Shepard Fairey's Obama, colorized Obama poster, if he wanted to go in and put that in, he could just simply say, I'm going to allow 10,000 copies of this. And each one is a license fee of $3,000. Hmm. Boom. Now he's just got it. And if someone's got that digital asset, they can prove they have right to use it. And they can then resell it and maybe resell it for more, depending on how the rules are set up with that transaction. But it really does provide this ability to track what happens with digital assets on the internet. And the best way to think about all this is it's a superior method to what's going on right now, which is just pure anarchy, right? Everyone's cut and pasting, download an image. No one knows what, you know, there's no tracking of anything. Mm -hmm. So this is a major leap forward for the creative community in terms of tracking and monetization. We're going to have to leave it. Give us your contact information. Yeah, just say the end of the segment. Right. Sure. So uh, Enrico Schaefer and it's TraverseLegal.com. You can contact me there and uh, certainly happy to help out anyone uh, who's got questions about NFTs or anything else in the, in the digital world. 
All right. Thanks very much. Our tech lawyer, Enrico Schaefer, will be back in just a minute with another segment of the M Squared TechCast. For right now, this is Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And you're watching the M Squared TechCast. Lawrence Technological University graduates earn a degree and a higher starting salary. In fact, when it comes to earning potential, the Brookings Institution ranks LTU fifth among U.S. colleges and universities. Be enriched. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. What do you get at Lawrence Technological University? Everything. Great labs and studios, supportive professors, plus a full campus life, NAIA athletics, and all the software you need to succeed. Be smart. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Hey, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And we're back with another segment of the M Squared TechCast. We have with us our regular guest, uh, IT security expert Richard Steenan, who uh, comes on the show about once a month to scare the bejesus out of us. And uh, I'm, I'm betting today will be no exception. As always. But I'm <laughs> off on a new project. Mike and I are going to digitally sign a copy of Cyber Stiletto. Yes. And we're going to sell it for only 100000 starting bid. Okay. I like how your mind works, Richard. So uh, <laughs> we're going to get right on that. <laughs> so anyway, we're actually going to be talking about, is it pronounced Verkada? I think so, yeah. Okay, the hack, which was essentially a video hack. I, I read the background on that of Tesla, right? They Tesla cars, they were hacking them or something like that? So, no, it was a hack of one of these, uh, you know, security uh, video camera monitoring companies. Huh. They they produce the cameras, but then they also manage them. So they're mm -hmm. you know monitoring prisons, hospitals, manufacturing mm -hmm. sites, stairwells, parking garages. You know, there could be a lot of sensitive information in there. Sure. And a hacker, um, and probably with some help from a team, um, got in and they got access to everything. They can look <laughs> at any camera uh, provided by this company, Vercada, Vercada. And uh, and because it's cloud, all the recorded data is sitting in the cloud, and they got access to all that as as well. So they started oh posting God. images from Tesla, from uh, prisons, and you know, and they don't—they're not nice and blur out the faces of people, right? So they're exposing very private information. Wow, that's one of the reasons that I'm not real keen on having security cameras in the house for that very reason, you know. Is yeah. Because if a hack goes down, talk about, uh, you know, privacy violations, right? Yeah, for that matter, that's why we all have a little uh, window screen that we put yes. over our video. Oh, yeah, I have one of those. I always keep it shut. The only time I turn it on is when I'm doing video, then I switch it off, exactly. you know? Exactly. And uh, the really interesting development was that evidently the FBI had their eyes on the hacker for a while. Um, so... And the hacker is in Switzerland, and he's a classic hacktivist, right? And he he's very prolific online and tweeting about he doesn't believe in intellectual property rights. Oh, really? Kind of the opposite of what your first segment was all about. Right. Um, 
and you know so he's kind of it felt feels like when he talks that he's with the pirate bay world right they want to steal stuff and make it available to you know information should be free was their old catchphrase hmm. um and so the fbi must have been tracking him and then bloomberg published the story of his hack and interviewed him uh, for the story he's very public about what he does thinking he's <laughs> immune to prosecution well um what day is today so last week the fbi indicted him with the help of the swiss police force and there's you know getting him on all sorts of computer uh, abuse and uh, you know conspiracy and all these things it's going to be so is he being extradited to the u.s then or what I, I'm not sure if Switzerland will go that far, but it means he'll never travel to a extraditable country, right? That's for sure. Yeah, they'll they'll grab him immediately. So you don't but, think he'll be doing any Miami Beach vacations? Of course, Miami Beach is kind of crazy <laughs> right now anyway. So Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, a place yeah. to avoid at the moment, certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or land in uh, Newark because for some reason the FBI catches a lot of Russian hackers, you know, yeah. induces them to come to Newark and I hate the Newark airport. It's yeah, that's, the craziest that's the thing. I don't know. I don't know if they fixed it up, but I remember that airport as being as bad as the Detroit airport used to be before they opened the right. McNamara terminal. It's just yep. awful. Yeah. Totally agree. And the but hardest it is the to closest, get to. It is it is the closest <laughs> airport to Manhattan, though, if you're going to Manhattan. So you know. Yeah, yeah, it works. Okay. So uh it's the hack has gotten a lot of um interest from the world of iot security internet of things security which you guys know well um because mike you do a conference every year on, on that subject um and you know there, there aren't a lot of hacks that get real public attention like this especially from the fbi uh, up till now we've all looked back <clears throat> to the mirai attack uh-huh. which used a worm to in to infect cctv cameras once again you mostly baby monitors, consumer products, and use those machines to do DDoS attacks on other players in some online game so it would slow down their actions so their adversaries could beat them in the game. And it, it practically took the internet down. There was so much traffic. Some people just have a lot of time on their hands, apparently. So uh... <laughs> that time as much as different interests, right? They get it's yeah. certainly certainly for this guy in Switzerland, Tal Common, I think his name is. Um, you know, they obviously got a thrill out of doing this kind of thing, and he, yeah. he his specialty was uh, hacking uh, code repositories like GitHub, and you know, finding vulnerabilities in the code or changing the code. Um, you know, it's a real world game for hackers and hacktivists. You know, the other thing I see are, is more and more stuff coming out about solar winds. What's the latest on that? I, I think I saw something a few days ago where they bored right in and figured out who the bad guys were or something like that, right? Yeah, it's it, the consensus is built that it's definitely the uh, SRV in Russia. Um, but there's been follow-on attacks because the you know now that we know the exploit and the vulnerability, uh, China has been accused of accessing some of those uh, customers of solar winds and using that backdoor for their own purposes. Mm. And of course, you know, solar winds occurred at the end of uh, 2020. I just finished the manuscript for the next edition of Security Yearbook. Oh, so, yeah, that press release is going out. Uh, Thursday, so you guys have the heads up. And uh, 
So, but as you think about, okay, 2021, what, what am I going to write about for the next edition? And for sure, the, the attack on Microsoft Exchange servers, definitely as big as solar winds, uh, certainly more disruptive, uh, because it's, you know, it's, Microsoft Exchange had four or five zero day vulnerabilities in it. The attackers, once again, suspected to be Russian, uh, discovered those vulnerabilities and they proceeded to just compromise every Microsoft Exchange server that was on prem, on premises. Um, and kind of to the tech community, it was kind of a shock to discover so many organizations still had email servers sitting inside their data centers. Um, over 100,000 were compromised. Oh and you can God. find them just by doing a scan of the entire internet. And they put a web shell front end on every single email uh, exchange server. So anybody can get into anybody's corporate email system. They can change emails they can send emails as somebody inside to somebody inside the organization. Or, you know, if it were, you know, your small bank, uh, who's hosting an exchange server, which probably includes them, uh, you could get emails directly from your bank. You wouldn't be able to tell that it was uh phishing software or something that was going to oh, affect geez. you with ransomware. So hmm. and from now on, Basically, you can't trust any email that comes from a corporation unless you know that they're using, you know, Office 365, which is where most people have moved their corporate email now. One thing I also wanted to ask you, uh, there was also a, a warning from the FBI Cyber Division last week about colleges and universities being juicy targets uh, for ransomware. And there was a, a ransomware called PYSA that the FBI mentioned specifically. Um, they use phishing emails and stolen credentials to access IT networks. Um, is this something new? Is PYSA new? Has this been around for a while? And and why are they looking at colleges and universities these days? It was new to me. What's really not new is colleges and universities, right? Yeah. They they have been the worst. They there's a, as I dug into it. Uh, this is 20 years ago, and I started wondering why universities were so bad at security. And I talked to security administrators at universities and they go, well, we have no control over our staff in particular. And they believed in something called academic freedom. And I, I went back and I reread the constitution. I couldn't find any guarantee of academic freedom. It's just a loose thing, meaning you can't control what a professor uh, does on the internet. Well, once so, they get tenure. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, uh, yeah. Right. Even then, they'll just say, oh, you're trying to censor me, etc. So I'm going to browse to all the dangerous sites out there anyways. Um, and that actually gave rise, interestingly, to the um, the, the new realm of uh, remote browser isolation, which is a really cool technology. Menlo Security is probably the leader in this. But there was a guy named Spikes. Um, who created Spikes Security because he was the CISO at uh, SpaceX and Tesla. Hmm. And all the SpaceX employees were researchers, right? They're academics. They were engineers and scientists, and they didn't believe in having a content URL filter like WebSense or, or uh, Blue Code or any of those that are out there now. Um, so he had to develop a proxy and they would have a video connection to the proxy. And then the proxy server would do their browsing for them. And all they would see on their screen would essentially be a video reproduction of web pages, mm -hmm. which there's no way code could be injected 
through that attack. And it's, uh, you know, pretty cool way to protect people from browsing. Huh. Interesting. Well, we got about two minutes left. So this is where you can talk about your latest edition of the security yearbook. Go ahead. Yeah, I'll squeeze on this two minutes. What's going to turn into a 45 minute book launch as I talk about the uh, new book, which has got a new cover, of course. Oh, very um, nice. So it's going to be, you know, probably 400 pages this year. I've added a total of 300 new vendors to the directory. Uh, um, and then the history, you know, I updated it for the year. A lot happened last year. Uh, and I added interviews with uh, Amit Iran, who's the founder of RipTech, one of the first MSSPs, uh, and now CEO of Tenable. And then uh, I inter- interviewed uh, Renaud de Raison, who is the uh, originator of Nessus, the, the big vulnerability scanner everybody uses. Mm-hmm. Um, and very exciting because now I've been tracking all of the vendors in the directory for years. So I've got how much they grew and how much they shrank in 2020, which I put in the directory, a little percentage number. Uh, so now you can tell immediately if a vendor is doing well or not by looking at the numbers that I Mm -hmm. present. So just, you know, quadrupled the value of the directory. Um, And it's only available at www.it-harvest.com slash shop. And it costs how much? Uh, So the current version has been discounted to $16 as I launched the new version, which is $54. Okay. Okay. Still a bargain. Thank you very much, Richard Steenan, for being with us today and talking about IT security. We'll be back in just a minute with another segment of the M Squared TechCast. For right now, it's Matt Rausch and Mike Brennan. And you're watching the M Squared TechCast. Lawrence Technological University graduates earn a degree and a higher starting salary. In fact, when it comes to earning potential, the Brookings Institution ranks LTU fifth among U.S. colleges and universities. Be enriched. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. What do you get at Lawrence Technological University? Everything. Great labs and studios, supportive professors, plus a full campus life, NAIA athletics, and all the software you need to succeed. Be smart. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. It's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And we are back with another segment of the M Squared TechCast. If it's Monday, it must be time for Fred Brown. Um, He has been with us uh, just about every week for a year now, I think, or close to a year, uh, talking about the pandemic. Fred is an expert in this field. He's been involved in the creation of a bunch of vaccines and a bunch of uh, uh, viral research, including uh, at the start of the AIDS epidemic uh, was sort of where he made his bones. And he has been an advisor to numerous uh, state, local, and most recently federal uh, government officials uh, when it comes to the coronavirus and how it is uh, um, affecting all of our lives. So, Fred, welcome to the show. And what do you need to share with us this week? Thanks, man. Thanks, Mike. Uh, well, gosh, uh, I thought I'd talk a little bit about Michigan. Uh, okay. We're not doing so great. 
Yeah, I just heard us mention in the same breath on the uh, NBC News report. I just heard us mention in the same breath with Miami Beach, which is not good company right now. Uh, so, no, and you know we have all the snowbirds coming back now too, right? It's getting nice. Oh God, here I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, okay. uh, and you know Miami is over about sixty percent the B one one seven variant of the virus, and that's mm. a much tougher variant to get rid of than the original one. We're we're actually over fifty percent here in Michigan according to testing. I'll show you some of that data. I um, and uh, let's see. I will go ahead and I've got a little bit, little bit of stuff uh, up and ready. Let me see if I can just. While you're doing that, I got my first shot of the Pfizer vaccine last Friday. Yay! And the only thing I was a little tired over the weekend, but other than that, I didn't really feel any side effects. You know. Excellent. That's good news. And I got my second jab of Moderna this Friday. So. Two weeks after that, I'll come give you a hug. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's see. So where is... You will be greeted at Fred's door by this very large dog. You yes, know? Right. That's yeah, right. I can hug I can hug the dog, but not... <laughs> yeah. right. That's right. Maisie, Maisie is a big old Maze fan. Of course, Maze Ma- and Blue fan. Uh, and uh, Maisie Blue Brown, she lives right around the corner from the stadium. And she helps. Uh, she's a big fan. So hopefully today, she's a very good basketball, very good hockey, and very good football player, it turns out. Uh, mm. Tends to disrupt the game slightly, but <laughs> we'll t- um, we have to come over and meet Maisie. So Michigan, um, here is, here is sort of what's happening in Michigan right now. You can see that um, we're, we, we've been relaxing pretty steadily uh, from basically kind of May 20th. This is sort of the mapping um, of all of the things that we got involved with. And you can see this is the new case rate. And, uh, you know, kind of November, December, right, right around Christmas was our worst new case rate. And you can see that. And mm-hmm. we were basically, we had the non-essential businesses closed down on May 1st. We then, we, on June 1st, we had a stay-home order that lasted for a while. And then we went through the risk. Uh, we, we closed down the bars, but let, let, allowed people to start, get out of their homes. Then we opened the gym, gyms. Uh, then we uh, started to, a new series, and we started to go up. And at that point, we decided, nope, we're going to work from home, no indoor bars, no businesses until – and that, that was extended from basically November 1st until the end of the year. And people thought, gosh, that was pretty draconian. And so on December 21st, we opened things up again. And January 13th, uh, we, there were more businesses open, and finally – on March 5th, we, uh, we, we opened up all the indoor gatherings up to 50%, and, and of course, uh, we opened up all the sports events as well uh, uh, for, uh, as I recall, high school. Um, so that, that's sort of the, our tracking. And unfortunately, you can see we went way up, we closed things down, and things went way back down again, and we're opening things back up again. And unfortunately, we're one of the leading states. We're one of the 20, I think, 22 states today that are actually in, in, indicating an increase in their, in their, in, in their, uh, in their rates of, of, of cases. Hmm. So what's interesting is we are now pretending that uh, everything's fine again. <laughs> what you have to do is you have to wrap this around. So if you see back here, we start January, February, March, and this is 2019. Uh, is is how much people are 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 moving around, and you can see here is our rate of moving around. Um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Staying home. So this is our rate of staying home, and you can see that about 20% of us were staying home all the way through 2019. But when the when the COVID virus hit, you can see that that's in the in the teal, and that went way up. All of a sudden, 35, 40% of us were staying home uh, in April, May. That was that was during the lock in. 
Uh, and then again, uh, right around uh, middle of November, we had uh, people uh, starting to stay home more. And that peaked around uh, right around January 1st, Christmas time. And since then, we've just been on a tear right down. See this slope going straight down? So if you look at where we are right now, we're about 22%. And if you look back here in January, where we were, we were at about 20% mm. of people staying home. And so at right now, we are acting like things are normal as far as our movements go. And um, what's interesting uh, is uh, the trips taken, right? And you can see once again that here we are. And uh, he, uh, here we are in the, in the teal, and we're actually in, we actually are slightly higher in the number of trips we're taking now than we were in 2019 at the same time. Good boy. So uh, we are acting as though we are home free, well from COVID, which is uh, optimistic. <laughs> Sadly, if you, you look at the least. reason for taking those trips, it was not to go visit your you know your uh, it was not to uh, go and uh, visit the doctor or something important. It was non essential what we call non essential trips. That, those are the things that really started uh, have started to kick in now and are causing this new blip in movement. So we are pretty much uh, acting like spring has sprung and we're ready to go. Uh, down to Daytona Beach and uh, and over and, and 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 up and around. Now, this is what people are doing. It is not necessarily what we recommend doing, and that's an important distinction because right now I wouldn't recommend you do this <laughs> because here is what our here is what our numbers look like. Right, we don't hear very much about deaths and hospitalizations because it takes about a four week lag in order for us to feel. Uh, 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 an increase uh, in cases. So when we go from cases to deaths, it's four to five weeks. Um, and and uh, right now we're at an absolute low point in the death rate, which is great news. It's, it's something we like to love to see. The problem is that you can see that four or five weeks ago we were at the we were at the bottom, and now this is going to start moving back up again. And that's a shame because we're we're this close to the vaccine, right? And, and, and something that'll actually, I think, work uh, for a large number of us to reduce the caseload. But we just can't seem to be patient enough to wait. And you can see that, you know, here, here's the trend. What's interesting is you can see this, uh, this large death rate here, uh, you can see early on, because we didn't know how to treat a lot of our people. Uh, so even though uh, we did, and we also probably underreporting the cases slightly. Uh, but you can see that here, well, the difference is, we actually had fewer deaths, but much, much higher uh, rates of casing, cases. A uh, few reasons for that. The nursing home was one of the reasons, as I said. Uh, uh, and, and, of course, as I said, the, uh, the fact we know how to treat them better. Uh, but the, fa- the fact is that right now we're having a lot more people who are younger getting sick uh, than, the, than the over 80s. We'll show that in a second. Here is the here's this Michigan laboratory testing. And this is what's very worrisome. Right now we're only testing at about 30, 30 to 40,000 tests um, uh, a day. And we actually need to be up at 50,000 tests a day at an absolute minimum to understand what's going on uh, and uh, in terms of the antigen tests. So in terms of knowing where COVID is, where it's expanding, where it's contracting, how, what the actual positivity rate is, how many people really are sick versus not sick. Um, if, we're, if we're testing at 50,000 a day, we're just at the edge of what epidemiologists like to say. We, we should be much more in the 100,000 to 125,000 tests per day if we want to get to a point of having a good established grid um, uh, that says, here's really what our rates are. And if we want to actually start to control with testing, we actually have to be at, uh, uh, you know, right now we're 50,000, we would have to be at at almost, uh, uh, we'd have to be at almost uh, a million a day to really 
control the virus. Wow. Uh, if you had home tests, you'd spit in every day, and you'd, you'd, you'd figure out whether or not you, know, you were sick or not. You'd probably do that once every uh, – well, you'd probably do that once every uh, – I'm sorry, twice a week. And that's what major universities are doing who want to control the virus via testing. That's what large countries are doing if they want to control via testing. That's about how, what they give you a sense of just how far off we are in our number of tests. And, of course, it's gone down significantly – uh, you know, gone down half by half uh, since our overall peak of about what twelve hundred, uh, 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 about one hundred twenty thousand a day. And you can see the other big issue we've got is that we're not doing any real serology testing. We'll talk about how important serology testing is in a in a minute. But serology testing basically tells you your level of immunity. So it tells you, do I have the antibodies to fight off the virus, and and, and are they high, and are they the right ones, and do I have enough? Do I have enough? enough quantity of those in order to fight things off. And you can see right now, we're only doing 4.7% of our tests. So, you know, um, if we're doing, you know, say 30,000 a day, we're just, it's a, it's a, what, 120? Uh, that we're doing, mm. our, our, is that right? 120 or so a day, uh, or 1,200, <clears throat> around 1,200. Well, the serology test is a blood draw, right? That's a little more invasive. No, well, actually, the, the, the best serology tests are, 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 are dried blood. Okay. So you give yourself a little finger prick, you put it on a piece of paper, and you send it into a lab. And those are the most advanced tests that are actually dry mm. blood. The, the, the uh, serology tests that we are using now that are uh, with whole blood are a little bit less advanced, but they're also uh, doable. Yes, but, but uh, typically, so if you go and get yourself a, a, you know, donate some blood, donate some platelets, it's always a good thing to do, and you can find out what your serology levels are as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's sort of where we are now. And, and of course, whether you've had or ha- currently have the virus, which is nice to know. Here's the number of, of laboratory tests we're doing. Our turnaround times are getting better. They're down at about, you know, some of them are down in less than a day. Uh, most of them are kind of a day plus. Uh, some of them are up as, as high as four or five days, sadly. So that, that really doesn't help. Uh, but you can see we're at 8.5% positivity today. That compares to a 3.5% positivity where we were back in July and August uh, timeframes. Time and when you're up at 85 positivity, it means you're not actually testing enough. You want to be at about a positivity rate of, a, of less than 3%, uh, really. And that, that indicates that you're testing at about the right level in order to catch everything you need to te- catch. So we're, we're you know, in, just in order to catch where, where we really are, we're testing about uh, threefold too low. Uh, now, we heard about the Massachusetts uh, school study, right? I don't know if you guys heard about that. Mm-hmm. But they were, they yes, decided to, uh, yep. to, to re- relax the constraint about three feet versus six feet, not, not for high school students, um, uh, but for elementary to, eighth, uh, to, elementary to, to, eight, uh, to middle school uh, students. They thought that that was safe as long as the kids wore masks. And this is the data set that they had. And you can see that basically um, the stat, you know, there are two rates, case rates they looked at. One was the staff case rate. And you can see that basically whether or not um, you were at three feet or at, at, at six feet, the lines are pretty much aligned. You know, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not too bad. Three feet's a little bit worse for staff uh, overall. You know, that, 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 that peak there, that peak jump makes it a little bit worse. Uh, but, you know, uh, overall, it's pretty close. And for students, it's very close. Uh, for three feet versus six feet. And so they said, based on that, you know, we could open a lot more schools and have a lot more kids coming to school if we let the three feet rule stand. Now, that means that the staff and the, and the teachers will have to remain six feet uh, away from all the kids, but the kids can be within three feet of the other. And the difference is, of course, that's in classrooms uh, and outside of classrooms when you're in cafeterias, when you're in hallways. And so you should, you should still, at a recess, certainly stay you know, six feet away. 
uh, you know, and the thing that, uh, so that's what the general result, that's what, that, that, that was a result that happened last week. That was just reported last week. CDC is looking at that pretty carefully, obviously. And uh, so are, so was Michigan. And here's what Michigan is. Michigan looks at outbreaks and you can see um, that of total of 645 outbreaks by far, uh, the biggest issue we have is in schools. So, um, you know, as far Fred, as the, the type on that is a little bit small. Could you oh, I'm sorry. Your... I, I got to go to I, I'm terribly screen. sorry. Yeah. I got to go to slideshow. Oh, yeah, there you go. There you go. There we are. I, ah, gee, I can you. No, we're having an eye test or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this is, I, I apologize. I, 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 oh, so you can see, uh, 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 you know, uh, of, of 645 total cases that we're concerned about, 162 of them are in school um, about, 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 you know, it's about 50-50 split between K, uh, senior in high school and K, and K through middle school uh, as far as what we're, what we're looking at right now. You can see the other big area of concern we've got is still in the SNP. Uh, uh, this is uh, um, the, 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 the skilled nursing facilities and long-term care centers. That, that, that also is fairly high at 145 total outbreak uh, cases. And then the other uh, areas are much more in the general economy uh, where they're concerned. But, uh, but you know, school... Um, is, is is still comparatively a place that outbreaks do occur. And, you know, we really want to think closely about before we go to a whole hog on this. It's, it's, it's a factor of how much ventilation there is. The elementary school kids are, in, are together all the time, uh, eight hours in a day. And so they have a lot of chance to communicate, uh, and, and the masks don't tend to fit very well. Uh, and and uh, also school sports are, uh, are are known to be a pretty big spreader of disease, sadly, uh, because the, you can, it's just hard to play sports and have a mask on. It's hard to breathe. So, yeah. uh, so I, I, I do one of my side hustles is public address announcing for high school sports. And we've had several teams uh, had to go into quarantine. Um, you know, an, an opposing basketball program was exposed to a referee and then they exposed us and none of our kids got sick, but they couldn't play for 10 days. And then there was, you know, a couple of hockey teams in the state high school hockey tournament had to drop out. And I know we've had at least one college team in the uh, NCAA basketball tournament That's that right. had to drop out. Yeah, Virginia did, right? Virginia Commonwealth did, uh, fortunately. Yeah, so it, it, it isn't, uh, you know, there is a risk and you really want to think about the, not not just the child's risk, which is low, frankly, uh, but the the risk to your family. Uh, so if you're in a family with a, with a diabetic or someone who has a or immunocompromised, you may really want to think before you send your child off to school, even though it's something that everyone else is doing, before you get your vaccination. If mm-hmm. you have your vaccination, I think it becomes a lot safer. Uh, well, it certainly becomes a lot safer. Uh, but you want to kind of talk to your doctor about before you send uh, uh, kids, and especially if you're in a extended family situation uh, and uh, and and hopefully you know at this point you've got the, the, the technology you need in order to, to support the children at home and you figured out a way uh, a lot of people who are especially single family mothers are having a lot of trouble with this so I really you know how heart goes out to them if you look at the unemployment rates for the single family mothers staying at home it's uh you know overall the unemployment rate for women is about three percent lower uh, uh, I'm sorry higher than it is for men and about 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 sixty percent of that, sixty to seventy percent of that, is due to child care, uh, and 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 the, and the court staying home with kids. And if you look at the uh, uh, women of color who uh, are 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 working at at at, uh, at lower paying jobs, 
that unemployment rate goes up to you know eight or nine or ten percent higher than the men in equivalent situation. So I, I really my heart goes out to them, but it's still a challenging situation, and, and you should understand all the risks you're taking before you do it. Uh, so now about the vaccines. The great news is we're doing up to three hundred thousand doses a week, um, and uh, over four hundred thousand at one point. I think that we may actually get to 500,000 doses in a week. Uh, and I, I'll show you some calculations I did with that uh, at, the end of the, at the end of the talk. Here is um, the group ages. And this is sort of exciting because I think, I think we might be starting to see the beginnings of a vaccination impact. If you look at the vaccines that are given to date, most of them are being given to people who are over 70 and 80 years old. So the, the percentage of people who are vaccinated over 70 or 80 percent are getting to be 50, 60%. Uh, and as a result of that, you can see here is what's happened from the very beginning of the pandemic all the way through today. And you can see that light blue line. And you can see that initially we had a lot of people in the, in the nursing homes, that big, big problem in nursing homes, sending people to the hospital and sending them back to nursing homes and they weren't protected well. That was that, that's that huge case rate that happened uh, at, at around March, April timeframe. And then we went down and you can see how tightly uh, the uh, the band is from 621 until 930. See how tight that band is? Now, the 80-year-old, the 70, 80-year-old plus, uh, they're on the bottom of that band. But notice that um, at, at the new band that's occurring, right? You get, you're seeing that tighten up again, but the 80-year-olds are off the chart. They're down, you know, by, I would say, kind of, uh, they're, they're sort of half the rates of the others. Now, you would have expected that the 80-year-old band would have come up with them if, if it's similar to what was happening in June, July. Uh, so my thought here is there could be an actual vaccination impact we're just starting to see, which is exciting, right? I, I mean, it doesn't look like much. <laughs> and we're all going, the great news is it's all going coming down, which is great. But the, that, 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 that separation of the curves to me looks like something that's more than just, uh, our artifact. Now, so, is this a is this a national chart or just Michigan? This is this, all, all this is just Michigan. Uh, this okay. Is just, okay. Good. It's all just Michigan. Uh, right. yeah. Uh, so uh, I wanted us to focus on Michigan Day. So this is something international, but it's about AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca just submitted, well, just announced its results. I don't know if you guys heard about it or not. Yep. Mm-hmm. But uh, they just announced the results. AstraZeneca has been having a lot of problems, right? They they released their data very early on to the UK uh, agency, where AstraZeneca is obviously world headquartered. Uh, could go ahead and approve the vaccine relatively rapidly. And as a result, the UK then administered policy that said everyone only needs one shot, not two. And they got their vaccination rates up way up real fast. And they've been able to fight off the B117 virus better than their European counterparts by far as a result of doing that. The European Medicine Agency, I told you last week, was basically farting around. Uh, and they, you know, there was lots of discussion about the price, there was lots of liability, there was lots of delays in the approval. They finally got it all together. And then people started having blood clots. And we looked at all the blood clot material last week. And what it turned out um, is that there were about five blood clots that people were concerned about in different countries. There were Austria, Denmark, uh, Norway. The most significant blood clot is one of the brains, uh, uh, similar uh, in, in, in uh, the brain. And there, there were 17 blood clots, but if you look at overall, uh, out of 17 million shots given, you'd have, we would actually have expected about 30 blood clots to have arisen, not just 17. So even though we were uh, vaccinating the elderly, who are more prone to these problems, uh, we had a lower ra- uh, rate of blood clotting than we would have found in the general population during over the same period had, had they people not taken the vaccine. So 
uh, European Medical Review Agency has said we went through it with a fine-tooth comb. We looked at everything. I, I, I did look at all that data set, and it looked extremely clean. Uh, part of the right reason things got off on a bad track was because um, AstraZeneca partnered with Oxford, and Oxford is, is you know an academic institution, and they're not as strong uh, at, uh, at uh, clinical trials uh, as 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 a, as a commercial company would be. AstraZeneca allowed them quite a bit of leeway in the design of the trials. Uh, and, and so the result was they didn't get very good fiscal significance. The United States said, we're not going to let you guys go in, come in here, especially because we're under, uh, unhappy with the, uh, the over 50-year-old data. I don't know if you remember, but the old over 50-year-old data sets were very weak. Uh, and so AstraZeneca said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll redo the test. And so they got 30,000 participants to redo a test. They did it in a different way than you normally see. Normally you see, you know, here's our placebo and here's people got the vaccine. In this case, they had two different uh, tri- uh, 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 active groups. The first active group had a vaccine, had a dose uh, week on day one, and then waited four weeks and got the second dose. Second group uh, had a dose on day one, and then waited 12 weeks for the second dose. And they then combined those results and announced them. So I'm very interested to see whether or not the four and 12 week is a big difference, because if it does, that puts them at a big disadvantage, right? So suppose the 12 week is a lot better. Uh, than the four week. That means you have to wait all that time only having one dose where you get the next round. And that's a concern. Uh, so we'll have to see the data. It hasn't been reported yet. Um, and the other, uh, and but but overall, combined, 79% effectiveness and 80% for all those over, over 60 years old. Now, they only had about 20% of the participants were over 60 uh, in AstraZeneca and then Moderna, they had 25% of the participants over 60, but still very representative. And, and about so I recall, sixty percent of those uh, of those of those twenty percent uh, were had comorbid morbid conditions like diabetes, uh, weight, uh, asthma, and so on. And that also result no hospitalizations, no deaths, mm. which is what we really want, right? So that's fabulous. Now the issue we've got is that there is a variant out there uh, in South Africa. They also were testing, and that variant when they did those tests. Uh, this vaccine was only 10% effective. So we're really going to have to watch whether or not this variant comes. If we're going to use this vaccine, we're going to have to watch and see whether this, 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 uh, this, this, uh, this variant becomes, uh, uh, a dominant variant in the United States. And if it does, then, you know, basically what they did in South, in South Africa was just, they just gave it away to neighboring African states because it wasn't going to be used in South Africa anymore. Uh, right now we got 30 million doses in our stockpile. So that's a lot of vaccine opportunity. 20 million more doses will be released on the day the FDA approves it, which will likely be around, they're going to be reviewing probably April 15th. So about a month from now, they'll have all the data together and review it. And it'll probably be released, you know, in, in mid to, uh, by around April 20th, I guess it'll be released. Uh, and then we have 300 million doses that we've negotiated. So we get a lot of this vaccine run and, and the cost of this vaccine is very inexpensive. $4 a dose compared to $10 a dose for J&J and compared to, you know, uh, $20 a dose, uh, up to $20 a dose for Moderna and, and, and Pfizer. So you get a sense that, you know, there's things happening here, uh, a lot, a lot of different dynamics happening. So that's, that's the, that's the vaccine. Now here's what we're concerned about with the variants, right? And you can see the three, well, the three one, the one three five one, 143 cases reported in the United States, um, with 20, and in 25 different jurisdictions, we got 64 total jurisdictions. So almost half the country has some of that, um, one three five one, uh, in it. Uh, P1 is lower. Uh, that's the, that's the Brazilian variant. And, but you can see the B117 variant, um, is, uh, is, is, is reported in, in 50 jurisdictions, about a 64 total, uh, jurisdictions. Um, and we got 5,000 cases and we're not, we're not testing. We're, we're testing about 
0.2% to 0.23% uh, of, of all the, of the tests we get back are tested for variants. And so that's an issue. And you can see here in, in, United, in, in Michigan, we started right there at number eight, where Ionia County, where they had, the, the, the jail had a lot of cases. And you can see that it's been spreading, spreading uh, quite a bit across, uh, across Michigan now. And in fact, you can see that uh, in the 420 cases that have been done, um, 58% of those have, uh, that, that have tested positive are coming out positive for the B117 variant. And the reason this is important is because the B117 variant is 50% more uh, more transmittable. So you can't use the same old masking you used before. You got to wash your hands more. Use more use heavier masks, uh, preferably uh, N95 masks. Uh, you need to distance more uh, because it's that much more the, the, the spread more particles that are stickier and more adherent to you uh, than the old uh, virus in a, in a simple way of, of saying it. So, and the other thing is it's about 20% more deadly. Uh, so that's a, and we have one case. Remember how I said that there was one case where the, the, the 311, the 1351 variant doesn't work. Uh, that, that actually doesn't work. Um, we have one case right now. If it turns out that these things grow fast exponentially. And so that's what happens, right? What happens is everyone thinks that, you know, everything's good. Our vaccination rate, steady, 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 300,000 every week. So we're beating this virus, right? But the problem is the B117 increases logarithmically. And so Texas and Mississippi, for example, they relaxed measures back in February, thinking they were ahead of the virus. Everything's fine. Vaccination is going well. We're ahead of the virus. Three weeks later, the virus, you know, passes it up and just takes off. And that's where we are right now in Florida. It's where we're going to be in Michigan because uh, we've relaxed ourselves a little bit too much. Uh, and then we, uh, sadly, we have, you know, we go through the cycle of saying, okay, well, now we got to flatten the curve. Oh my gosh, we're going crazy. And so we flatten the curve and everyone complains and gets, you know, and gets, <laughs> and gets stuck at home. And, uh, and then you have economic decline. And we don't want to avoid that, that up and down if we can by, by just being a little bit more patient instead of going to Daytona Beach, instead of, uh, come, <laughs> instead of going and, 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 and acting at the bars. Please don't do that because this is what really where we are right now. We're at a point where B117 virus is going to start taking off. And the reason that's important is that here is how we, we look at herd immunity. Remember we talked about herd immunity? Herd immunity is the number of people that act, actually get vaccinated to protect those who haven't been vaccinated. And right uh, back on January, when we used uh, up against the old variant, it took, we had, we, our herd immunity levels were needed to be 60%. That's, uh, and the, the formula is at the bottom, one minus one over R0. R0 is 2.5, so you get about 60%. Uh, at B117 variant, uh, the R0 suddenly goes to 3.25. Herd immunity suddenly jumps from 60% to 70%. 70% of us have to get vaccinated uh, all, all of a sudden or, or get sick and, and recover in order for us to uh, beat this, beat, beat this variant. Um, and you can see right now, we're at right, right now, if you consider that we've had about 11% of us have gone through both vaccinations are fully protected. We've had a, about 8% of people have a, a, asymptomatic cases. And, and about six percent, six point five percent case rate overall um, uh, uh, that have been that have been you know monitored and, and diagnosed. Right, we have we have asymptomatic and ones that and then and then the ones that have been actually diagnosed. We think that overall in Michigan we have got about a twenty five percent immune protection rate. Right, so that that's how many people. That's what we're at right now. So twenty five percent, but we need to get to seventy. It means we're missing forty four point five million people more have to be vaccinated. And that's a lot of people. 
Now, right now, we're vaccinating 300,000 people a day. Our max has been 400,000. And I said, if we can do 500,000 a day, which is uh, we're talking about almost doubling what we're able to do right now, then we could uh, have complete vaccination and get to the 70% uh, by around June 15th. But that assumes that we're going to get a lot faster on our vaccination. If we don't get a lot faster on our vaccination, we're into the middle of July. Hmm. And well, that only right. that, that requires two things to be true. The first thing is that we don't that the variants cannot pierce the immunity from the vaccine. And that's what we found. Remember, we found that was true in South Africa, that when we gave people a shot, only 10, you were only 10 percent protected. That happens with our with with the with with the variants that are in Michigan and we're and our effectiveness rate goes from 95 to 10. And we allow that, and then people get reinfected, then we never will reach herd immunity with the current vaccination. It'll be impossible. I don't think that's going to be the case, but we just have to be careful and watch that uh, to make sure it's not piercing immunity. And the other thing is that, of course, if the variant's going to be even more transmittable and the R0 goes up again, uh, uh, then uh, again, our, our threshold goes up again, and we're going to have to get that many more people vaccinated. So for right now, we're kind of looking at, you know, to be safe if we're at our current rates, middle of July, but uh, if we're able to speed things up, middle of June. Okay. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it at that. So I think that's rather positive, you know, so. Yeah. As long as, as long as the variants don't penetrate the, the immune, the, 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 our immune, our, our, our immunity uh, yeah. of the vaccine. That, that, that really is important to watch. And right now we don't know that. Okay. But so far, it's looking good. All right. Thanks very much, Fred Brown. We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks for your thanks for your input this week, as always. Very informative. Uh, we'll be back again uh, in a week on uh, March 29th with another edition of the M Squared TechCast. For right now, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And you're watching the M Squared TechCast on a podcast, Detroit.com. Oh, well, that's the Thanks for listening to M Squared TechCast, a live internet radio show offering the latest news and interviews with the people.